We will start this third episode in our series about the Nazi traits of Wittgen Quisling with some words that belongs to an old man talking about when he was a teenager that got into politics at the start of 1940. His story is typical for many young people, not only then, but also both before and after. He tells about the time he was invited to a political meeting by a friend from school, and he explains it like this, quote, The leader for the meeting held a short speech and told us about the tasks and responsibility its members had. First and foremost, he underlined our duties towards the flag and the fatherland. Now it only was Quisling that can save it, he claimed. After this, we were commanded to march. It was all very military-like. I was not very politically interested to begin with, but I still ended up enlisting in the youth organisation when that meeting ended. At the time, I did not have the faintest idea what consequences this decision would have for large parts of my life. I was 18 years old. I did not have the answers to what the future would bring. End quote. The youth organisation he had enlisted in was the youth organisation of NS, the Norwegian Nazi Party, and later that same year Norway will be invaded by Nazi Germany. He continues, quote, During the spring and summer of 1940, so much happened that it could confuse most people. Through newspapers and radio, we were told the parliament tried to force the king to abdicate. I can still remember the newspaper photograph of Bishop Avon Badigarov with a megaphone out in the woods asking the still resisting men to lay down their arms. What I didn't know then was that it was German war propaganda. By all the official channels, we were told to collaborate with the occupying forces. End quote. And just think about that for a second. This man, when he was a boy, he was dead poor, he had little schooling, he was at one point put out on the street with his mother and his siblings, he had little or no security net or social sort of network, and for this young man, the path to Nazism seemed almost innocent and playful. Just listen. If you look away from the political aspects, the youth organisation was a little like the Boy Scouts. We did sports and went on field trips in the forest, but by all means, we also did a lot of marching and always with a kind of military command. Allegiance to the country, the flag and the leader were the essential elements in the ideology. We were constantly told that we had a duty to follow Quisling in his fight for Norway against Bolshevism and the traitors in London. Quisling was described as the only one that could save the fatherland, him and no one else. We almost learned to look up to him like he was a god, a new sacred Olaf. He's referring to an old working king here. We were young and easy to mould. Even though the, the thought of leaving the organisation had struck me, it would have been so hard to break out of that circle of camaraderie. And quote. And only a couple of years after his membership in the quote-unquote Boy Scouts, this young man will meet with Adolf Hitler. The 
words we just heard before the intro does not belong to any of the big names in history. They belong to someone almost nobody knows. They belong to a guy named Per Jad. And his story is just absolutely fascinating. Not only does he provide a great testimony to how it was like enlisting in NS, but by sheer coincidence, he will end up being Vidkun Quisling's personal assistant throughout the war. He will accompany Quisling to meet with Hitler and many other of the top German Nazis, and his memoirs has been a real valuable source in the making of this series. And while interesting, we of course have to treat his words with some scepticism, as he clearly is biased towards Quisling, but to his defence, he, he has never been suspected to have taken part in any war crimes and did not receive any significant sentence after the war. So he was more or less a, a secretary and a helper. So I don't really have any problems using him as a source as long as we... As mentioned in the beginning, this is the third part of this series that looks at the rise of Nazism in Europe in general and the famous traits of Wittgen Quisling in particular. So if you haven't heard the previous two episodes, you might want to do that in order to understand how everything ties together, but that is of course entirely up to you. Where we left off last time, Quisling had just been in Berlin to meet Hitler for the first time. This was at the end of 1939, a key event that will seal his fate as a traitor. In his almanac, he had written four letters on the date for his big meeting. They were AVGJ, an abbreviation for the Norwegian word of Jörelse, meaning decision. It was decision time. Quisling, the former Minister of Defence in Norway turned leader for his own Nazi party, had decided to go in cahoots with Adolf Hitler. It is not exactly clear what words Quisling said in his meeting with Hitler in December 1939 that called Hitler so abruptly into action, but it is clear that Hitler, immediately after the meeting with Quisling, starts to plan invading Denmark and Norway in a military operation that will be known as Operation Übung, that will take place early in the spring of 1940. What we do know, however, is that the self-proclaimed Anglophile Hitler feared British intervention in Norway, a country that tried hard to stay neutral, and that Quisling did strengthen this impression. Quisling did not, however, meet Hitler to directly ask for an invasion, and he would defend himself later by saying that they had only agreed that Germany would come to Norway's aid should British forces breach Norway's neutrality and quote-unquote get stuck, this was a term that he would use, on Norwegian soil. But the result was nonetheless invasion, and of course Quisling had no mandate from anybody whatsoever to broker any deal with Hitler on behalf of his country. If we look at the map, it might give us a hint to why Hitler is so quick to make this decision after meeting Quisling. The early months of the war was called the Phony War because it really did not happen much after Great Britain and France declare war on the 3rd of September 1939, after Germany had invaded Poland a couple of days earlier. Uh, there are no major battles then, or at least not uh, on land. The war starts at sea, with the British and German navies clashing. And if you look at a map, it is easy to see why Denmark and Norway can be important in a naval war between these two powers. For example, if you want access to the Baltic Sea, where newly occupied Poland is, among other countries, there is a quite narrow passage of water between Denmark and Sweden, and then a bit larger passage of water between Denmark and Norway that you would need to control. 
Also the important German harbour city of Kiel is east of Denmark and there are many important harbours and strategic important locations around this area so Scandinavia was more or less in the direct firing line. And while from a Norwegian point of view unwanted British involvement might have seemed far-fetched it is worth noting that Quisling and Hitler to some extent were right when it came to fearing British intervention in Norway as the British breach of Norwegian neutrality will happen some weeks after their meeting. It will happen in February 1940 when the German supply boat called Altmark stood in centre of events. And this so-called Altmark affair is really important for what will happen later. And this is roughly how it came to pass. Altmark was spotted by a British plane, leading to the British destroyer Cossack intercepting it on direct orders from Churchill, even if Altmark was in neutral waters and also was escorted by a Norwegian military vessel. Churchill knew that Altmark had British prisoners on on board, but it was a non-military vessel. It had the right to save passage through Norwegian waters. Now this was ignored by the Brits and it was chased deep into a fjord where despite the Norwegian military vessel's attempt to interfere was attacked by the British destroyer killing seven Germans in the process and liberating its its prisoners of war. So reading back Pierre Yard's testimony from the beginning of this episode, you can understand the confusion some people with limited amount of information might have experienced at the time, because the British didn't seem very nice now, did they? Churchill clearly sent a signal that he did not really care much about neutrality if British lives were at stake, and hey, what is the military super inferior Norway going to do about that anyways? They couldn't do anything. So the seven dead bodies of the Germans were carried into the shore by Norwegians that had responsibility to protect them. So in early 1940, things might not have seemed as black and white as they do now in retrospect. Quisling would, for example, very often portray himself as a force for stability and peace, being critical to the current government's actions. And if you weren't necessarily into politics or had a much, you know, had much in-depth knowledge, you could easily believe something like this because there was a lot to be rightfully critical about, and the good guys and the bad guys weren't necessarily that easy to spot. In his trial, after the war, Quisling would claim that he had saved Norway through his diplomacy and avoided an invasion from the British. And while this is not true, it has, in the aftermath, been revealed that Great Britain did in fact have plans for setting out troops in parts of Norway, claiming that Norway had not managed to keep its neutrality intact. So British soldiers were already standing by to secure important strategic positions. However, it is also important to understand that Britain and Nazi Germany were not sort of equals in this sort of equation, because while Britain were interested in using Norway as more or less an involuntarily military base, Germany wanted to include Norway in the larger Germanic Third Reich. So there's a big difference there. And also the Norwegian foreign minister accepted that if Norway were eventually to be drawn into the war, it was important not to be drawn in on the quote-unquote wrong side. 
So there was a clear preference towards British intervention rather than Germany for remaining neutral was not an option. But still, the, the preferred political path was clearly, you know, not rocking the boat whatsoever to try to avoid doing anything that could upset any of the big powers on either side. So this would not at all be anything like the First World War uh, when they were fighting in the trenches in France. Then Norway was quite insignificant and could easily stay neutral. But when they were fighting in the North Sea, uh, not so much. One reason why the Altmark affair was important was that it installed a sense of urgency to the conflict in Norway and removed any belief Nazi Germany had had that a political solution in Norway where they would install Quisling as new German-friendly head of state in a more or less non-militaristic coup uh, was out of the question and that swift and heavy military intervention would be needed. So Altmark contributed to cement Hitler's plans of a huge-scale military operation. When Quisling gets back home from Berlin at the end of 1939, he returned as a man that has gotten vast funds from the Germans to support his organisation and the NS party newspaper that all of a sudden will start coming out in record numbers, even though they had to give most of the papers away for free due to the you know lack of interest and lack of bias. Bit suspicious though, right? All of a sudden the NS party paper that had been more or less bankrupt would now come out all the time and be everywhere. It must have seemed more than a little strange to people. Actually, Quisling's party NS had never been in worse shape than at this point. And to be fair, his meeting with, with Hitler was an unexpected and surprising turn of events for him. After all, the intention was first and foremost to ask for funds from their ideological much bigger sibling in Germany, and all of a sudden he's standing face to face with their fewer talk in big politics. The fact that NS at this point really only had a few hundred, perhaps in excess of a thousand diehard members around the country at the end of 1939, and Quisling really had failed at his attempts of building up his political career after his turn as Ministry of Defence, that was basically the situation. So in many ways Quisling was about to become a somewhat almost pathetic figure locally, somewhat that many knew, but despite becoming more and more extreme and his speeches would gain less and less attention on the whole. So basically, he only had this quite small cult around him that might bear some resemblance to those suspect gang Hitler had around him before his failed beer hall putsch many years before. But one big difference was, of course, that it should be clear for all to see at this point that Quisling had absolutely no chance of winning any fair democratic election. He was at this time overlooked by many of his political opponents because he was rather irrelevant. He was a leader of a weird Nazi clique, more or less. So when he gets back from Berlin right before 1940, it is a case of it being a little bit quiet before the storm. There is some back and forth correspondence with Berlin, some different people talking at this time, but still everything about German interests in a military occupation of Norway is very secret, and Quisling does not have exact information that Hitler is planning a military attack. Then, as we said, the Altmark affair happens in February 1940. Quisling is quite ill for a while during these months, but, you know, he's still communicating through his party's newspaper, and when he does, he almost seems like this old grumpy grandpa, full of doom and gloom. Historian Odvar Hedal has an excellent description uh, of this quote. In an article one month before the occupation, he laid bare his personal view on the state of the country. 
His stone still reminded a little bit of a prophet from the Old Testament that is reprimanding his people. The NS viewpoint had always been right, he said, but the people had not been willing to listen. The key for peace would have been through reconciliation between Great Britain and Germany. That was why he so energetically had gone in for uniting all the Nordic peoples in a grand alliance. If only enough influential people had supported his ideas, he would have been able to secure Norway's interests by getting the other Scandinavian countries with NS in the forefront on behalf of Norway to broker peace between Germany and Great Britain. However, the Norwegian people had betrayed their potential saviour and chosen Barabbas instead. Quisling gave the people the blame for NS having deteriorated so much that even he had to admit that the party was in poor shape. End quote. So we have talked a lot about this previously because Quisling is clearly a narcissist. There's no doubt about that. And he's more or less directly comparing himself to Jesus. Barabbas obviously being the prisoner the mob got released instead of Jesus Christ when given a chance according to the Bible. And I really like this image of Quisling being this erratic prophet shouting out a combination of repent all ye sinners and I told you so is both comical and a little eerie when we know what was behind it and what is going to happen. In retrospect, one would perhaps think that someone should have done something to Quisling much sooner. After all, he was not really hiding where his sympathy was ideologically. He was also publicly clearly preferring Hitler to Churchill, uh, but the amount of what seemed like crazy stuff he said seemed to have numbed people that had long grown tired of his threats and extremism. But as we now know, Quisling meant every extreme thing he said quite literally. Quisling was determined that he was destined for great things. And the whole story of Quisling uh, that we're going through here is a really weird and sad one in one way because it is almost this story about a lonely child that is emotionally numb but still visibly, visibly fragile. And as we said, he was a man that was very hard to remain indifferent to. Hitler really seemed to like Quisling, and this personal connection is really key for this story. But Hitler is also a man that distrusts more or less everyone, and does not inform Quisling about his military plans. But, according to historian Hedal, Quisling is very much aware of what is going on, and is making sure that he is at Hitler's disposal before the invasion uh, starts. Our two main historians on Quisling for this series, that both have written excellent biographies, are Hans-Frederik Dahl and Odvar Hedal, and I know they had confusingly similar last names, but they have a little bit of a different tone when discuss- discussing Quisling's intention. I think. And I feel Hodel is the most direct when it comes to uh, pointing out Quisling's less than virtuous sides. The question is really, was he a cynic or a lost idealist? And if we want to talk about whether or not from a completely objective and legal standpoint really was guilty of reason, both our historians agree completely. But Hedal seems to favour the Quisling to a very large extent calculated and felt he had a deal in place with Hitler so that he either way would gain power, either by a military coup or after a military invasion. Whereas I interpret Dahl as perhaps having a somewhat, you know, to a larger extent viewing Quisling through the eyes of the hopeless, naive dreamer that he also was, perhaps indicating that a little more of his actions, you know, can be explained not only due to the raw lust for power and influence, but also 
uh, through this higher yet terribly misunderstood belief that what he was doing really was for the best. And this is only my interpretations of these historians' work, and they might disagree with them, but I think both viewpoints are actually equally valuable, and that is what still makes this man a conundrum even to this day. He's, you know, is he crazy? Is he a psychopath? Is he a misunderstood dreamer? Is he a neglected wunderkind? Is he victim of circumstance and so forth? And to a various degree, I think he's potentially and probably all of these things put together. But... Regardless of where we are on this scale, where the vicious, treacherous predator is at one end uh, and the confused idealist is at the other, there is no doubt in any serious historian's minds that he is very much guilty of treason. And there is very little doubt about what he actually did, because what happens besides from his meetings with Hitler in December 39, that was, you know, treacherous on its own, is that he has conversations with several other German officials, and according to Heydahl, he is giving them indications that Norway would not be opposed to German intervention against the British as long as the Germans were under Norwegian command, meaning his command. So he's willing to help as long as he is the one that will finally gain power in Norway. One of the most damning evidence against him is a meeting that will take place in Copenhagen only days before the invasion where Quisling is being ordered to travel there to meet a German agent. The order came directly from Hitler and the intention was for Quisling to give Germany fresh intel about Norway's military in order for the invasion to go as quick and smooth as possible. Quisling would after the war under the threat of death penalty, strongly deny that this meeting ever happened. The reason is likely that this meeting is just such a huge smoking gun that can't be excused in any good way. But there is no real doubt that the meeting took place. It happened on the 3rd of April 1940 at the Hotel de Angleterre between Quisling and Colonel Hans Pickenbrook, and we know this since it was recorded by many different people in journals and records and so forth. The Germans were quite good at documenting stuff. Even though Quisling at this point did not have detailed knowledge about everything, after all it was some years now since he had been officially in the military and Minister of Defence, the Germans seemed quite happy with the information he can give them about Norwegian military positions and so forth. One thing he told Peckenbrook would have ever have fatal consequences for the Nazis, and that was concerning a piece of information that was technically correct, but that proved to pan out completely differently. He said that the coastal batteries in the Oslo Fjord, the narrow passageway of seawater going all the way up to the Norwegian capital, would not fire at any foreign military ships, unless being given a direct order from the government. But, as so often in history, we can see how individual choices can alter events, but we will soon get to that. Even after this meeting on April 3rd, Quisling was still not being kept in the loop, and he did not exactly know when the invasion would start, but it was becoming clear to everyone now that something big was about to go down. The British that had already breached Norwegian neutrality with the Altmark affair, 
will on the 8th of April breach Norwegian neutrality again by dumping sea mines in the Norwegian territorial waters. But it will not matter much, because at this point the Nazi war machinery has already started to move, and it moves fast. April 9th is the infamous dates where Operation Vesra-Übung takes place. Denmark will first be occupied and capitulate on the very same day. As we said in the previous episode, Denmark really had very little chance of resisting, given their proximity and lack of natural defences. The Germans basically only had to cross the border with their superior numbers and tanks and aircraft, so no one really expected the Danes to put up much of a fight. But Norway is a completely different task militarily, only because of the sheer nature of the geography. Basically, you have to get there by sea or air unless you want to cross the border from Sweden. But Sweden had a very different role in the war. First and foremost, they did not have the same strategic significance at the time. And secondly, they actually had a defence that could be reckoned with. So attacking them would really make no sense. And from Germany, you would have to cross the water anyways if you were going to through Sweden. So that made even less sense. Sweden would, by the way remain neutral throughout the war, serving both as a sanctuary for many Norwegians, but, you know, also at the same time, uh, Sweden has been criticised for letting German personnel and interests pass through. We'll not go into full detail about the military invasion of Norway on April 9th, as this is a story with so many destinies and so many details, but we really do have to go through some of the highlights of this day, as they are essential to understand what will happen next. As part of the military operation, Germany would attack both from the air and the sea simultaneously at many different locations. Most of the important harbour cities would be secured at the same time as they would fly in large numbers of ground troops escorted by fighter planes from the Luftwaffe. Norway had close to no air defence at the time, apart from a handful of old biplanes that were Gloucester Gladiators if you're into, into planes like I am, and they fought heroically, but, you know, they were quite easily taken out of the equation, and overall the operation was a huge military success. There is, however, one very significant victory that is scored on the Norwegian side on April 9th, and that is related to the coastal batteries that Quisling had told the Germans about, those that would not fire unless giving a direct order from the government. Spearheading the German troops headed for the capital of Oslo this night, because it really started on the night to the April 9th or in the very, very early morning, was a heavy cruiser called Blücher. It was named after an old Prussian field marshal that was victorious at Waterloo in 1815, called von Blücher. And even though Norway was still clinging to its neutrality, even at this time, the military commander in charge realised what was going on and basically went rogue by ignoring waiting for permission to open fire and decided to let Blücher have it from close range with some rather outdated coastal guns. The colonel in question was a man called Bidigit Eriksson, and he has some really famous quotes from this very early morning in April. Apparently, firstly, he is supposed to have said, quote, Either I will be decorated, or I will be court-martialed. Fire! End quote. That's almost taken straight out of an action movie, though, isn't it? And it, it, it gets even better, because uh, for when he is being, you know, 
asked if he really meant that they would fire at the Germans with real ammo, he's supposed to have said, quote, damn right we're firing live ammunition, end quote, and then they opened fire. Actually, that quote is also, you know, can be translated with a little bit more salty language, but, um, but these are still quotes that are posted on social media each April 9th in, in remembrance of, uh, of uh, this colonel's courage, taking matters into his own hands, faced with invasion from a far superior enemy. And asking whether or not it was technically correct to open fire, it's, it's really hard to argue with results because the coastal batteries under his command shockingly managed to bring the huge ship down, pounding it hard from close range, also hitting it with a couple of torpedoes until it eventually caught fire and capsized. It was a real surprise to everyone, because Blücher was a brand new, very powerful ship. It was a heavy cruiser in the Admiral Hipper class, weighing 16,000 tonnes, and should be more or less unsinkable. Altogether, 830 Germans died in the cold water this early, early morning, uh, with some sources even claiming it was closer to a thousand. But there was, you know, regardless, a huge loss of lives. This event is important for several reasons. For one, it was a huge boost in Norwegian morale and something that would be remembered well by members of the resistance throughout the war even. Uh, but even more importantly, it delayed the invasion of the capital Oslo giving the Norwegian King Haakon VII and the Norwegian government time to escape. You see, the king, he was a really important symbol, and although he had very little real power at this point, he was a clear target for Hitler. For the Nazis, you see, it was important to capture the king and the government, hopefully forcing them to collaborate in one way or another. But... Instead, they started on a quite spectacular flight where the king and the crown prince together with the government travelled inland and while on the run they will turn down German demands of surrender meaning that the Battle of Norway would actually go on for two more months outside of the big cities. Prime Minister Johann Nigoschwal that we quoted quite extensively in the previous episode and the king will manage to escape to London where they will play an important role in leading the resistance during, resistance during the occupation. But that's another story really. Let's get back to the events on April 9th because what was Quisling's role while all this was going on you might ask? And that is unsurprisingly a really, really good question. Actually, let's go one day back again, back to April 8th, because this was a day uh, the second British breach of neutrality happens when they were putting mines out in the Norwegian waters, and for some hours the Norwegian government were confused and thought that the British were going to attack, before they gradually understood that it was in fact the Germans that were coming. Quisling, however, tried to use the British mines to his advantage. Uh, and he would, on April 8th, be saying publicly that this was proof that the political parties in Parliament had failed and that it was now time for NS, remember that it means National Union, to take over control as a gathering force for Norway, as they, according to Quisling, were the only ones that had read the situation correctly and were the only ones that at this point could save Norway. So he was basically telling uh, Nygoswald to step down and hand over power to him and his mini-Nazi party. 
But, as one can imagine, nobody really paid much attention to what Quisling had to say on this day, as it was becoming glaringly obvious that Norway was on its way into the war with full speed, and for the general political environment and population, Quisling had become almost this comical character that we spoke about, very far right and quite isolated uh, in Norwegian politics. And actually, I just came across another event from the 8th that I had not previously known about, and that was a Polish submarine also sunk a German ship, and that was uh, a Polish submarine under British control, uh, obviously. Uh, and it's, it sank a German transport outside of the Norwegian town of Lillesand, where it ended up leaving around 200 dead, and the survivors, there were a similar number, were rescued by the local authorities, and they were basically saying that, no, we're just peaceful traders and so forth, but, you know, it didn't really convince the people that saved them because a lot of them had army uniforms and so. So the local police chief, you know, he tried all he could to alert the Norwegian government, but to really little avail because time was short and these hours were just so chaotic. So over a few hours then, where the uh, government first thought the English were going to invade, then the Germans, they got all sorts of reports about various naval military movements. And I just try to imagine how you would handle a very well-organized, synchronized attack in real time without today's modern communication technology. And when there are so many uncertainties and so much at stake... So I don't really envy the role of the Norwegian foreign minister during these couple of days. In retrospect, it's it's easy to say that, you know, just mobilise your damn troops and fire at anything with a swastika or a black and white cross on it. And, you know, that is actually more or less uh, word by word what the foreign minister, his name was Kurt, by the way, ended up saying during these hours, it seems like a panicky order that went something like this, quote, shoot at the Germans, not the English, end quote. And I think that's quite telling for the situation, really. So on the evening of the 8th, Quisling is brought to a hotel in downtown Oslo by some of his and his brethren, allegedly for his safekeeping. And also in this hotel is his right-hand man, Hagelin. He is the ex-opera singer with the tight German connections. Quisling had not been kept oriented about the operation, and everything surrounding it was still very much secret until the very last minute as everything were to happen really fast. So in many ways, this entire operation was a great example of German blitzkrieg done by sea and partly by air. And despite the setback, uh, setbacks with Blücher and the vessel sunk outside of Lillesand, it was all very effective, and both uh, Norwegian defences and the British that had troops standing by were more or less completely taken by surprise. In fact, the entire operation was so secret and militarily well-planned that some of the people in the German civil side did not either know what was going to happen um, or, or, or at least had very little information. And even the man in charge of leading the takeover of power only got his orders on April 8th. And in his papers, there was nothing about initiating, you know, putting in Quisling as new head of state. But, as we might also remember from the previous episodes, there are many disagreements within the German Nazi hierarchy. And, most notably, two of Hitler's top dogs are on Quisling's side. And those two are the Grand Admiral Raider and the big Nazi ideologist Alfred Rosenberg. 
And even though Rosenberg had to accept losing out when it came to plans of having a straight-out political coup orchestrated by Quisling, he was still pretty keen on getting his man in there because for Rosenberg, the purpose of occupying a new country was not only out of strategic and military purposes, but also ideological reasons. So for him just to come in there and keep the Labour Party government hostages or as puppets, you know, it made little sense as he actually wanted a completely Nazified Norway. Now, there will quickly become way too many names to, to follow. So I'll just mention a couple of them briefly. There's one guy named Brower. He's in Norway orchestrating. And then there are two other gentlemen also in Norway named Scheidt and Schreiber that are connected to the Grand Admiral Raider and Alfred Rosenberg. Brower, he's the man in charge of handling the, the power takeover. He's the one that got these orders on April 8th. He is not really a big fan of Quisling. He just wants to get this invasion over and done with, as painless and as quickly as possible, let the German Navy take over all the important harbours, capture the government and the king, force them to, uh, for, you know, force them to collaborate uh, so that the Nazis can conduct business in a way, you know, that might seem semi, uh, semi-legit, because if you have the king on your side, or seemingly on your side, it's easier to, to sort of hack that. But as we talked a lot about in the previous episode, there is there's not really one way just to take over another whole country, is there? So what happens is that on the early, early morning of April 9th, the two gentlemen, Scheidt and Schreiber, they first go down to the dock in Oslo to meet up with Blücher and the flotilla following Blücher, being surprised when they don't find them there because Blücher has been sunk, remember? So they then learn about this event and then uh, also they realise the flotilla had to turn back out to sea uh, and being sort of the sort of quisly friendly Rosenberg and Raider men, they uh, get through their close connections to Quisling and Haglin. They both find these men at the hotel they were at and, you know, this is only really close by. It's only really a five minute walk away from the harbour. So... Uh, so we're talking really small distances. So they basically walk over to the hotel, fight no both, go to the hotel. And uh, so when the invasion had not gone exactly after plan, uh, and the same soldiers that were supposed to be arresting the royal family and all the other important decision makers were dying in the cold Oslo fjord or being on lifeboats or for a very short time, being kept away from their mission, the two gentlemen, Scheidt and Schreiber, you know, that I almost imagine running around back and forth in downtown Oslo, like in an old fast-forward film with hysterical Benny Hill music being played over, they see an opening for what they thought could be a plan B, even though, you know, there wasn't really any plan B. But they decide to make their own plan B. They decide that now is the time for Quisling to take power, just as Rosenberg and Raider would have liked it. So... No Germans at the harbour, Quisling and Hagelin at the hotel. Now they start beginning talks. And Hagelin, he's there, Quisling is there, and Hagelin is super eager for Quisling to take power immediately. And Scheidt, he's also pushing very hard uh, for Quisling to take command, assuring him that this was what Hitler would have wanted. 
you know, after all, Quisling had met Hitler in person early months before, uh, during actually two long meetings where Hitler promised him support, and now that the king and the government had basically ran away, they needed someone to rule, and who better than Quisling, right? Now, and based on what we know, this might sound a little bit surprising, but Quisling actually hesitated quite a bit. He needed a lot of convincing. As we know, he is not a man that is great at improvisation. He likes to have a plan and to stick with it. You know, he's a very structured guy, not very flexible at all. And in his eyes, the plan had been that Hitler would help him to power from afar and that he then would call for Hitler's military support against the British. But when the Germans now would be seen as outright invaders, it might be a little bit different. No doubt about that. And he was in fact quite concerned not to be seen as what he clearly already was, a traitor. These meetings with Hagelin and the Germans took place back and forth during the early morning, and some hours passed. Quisling stepped outside for a stroll, and in the confused city of Oslo, German soldiers had now started marching uninterrupted down the main streets among puzzled civilians, and starting to take up various positions according to their orders. You see, at this time, a few hours later, the remainder of the soldiers from the Blue Show flotilla had been put ashore further down the fjord, and had now, by one way or another, started to find their way up to Oslo, so they're not really great distances here. And at the same time, the Luftwaffe had very easily been able to push aside the few Norwegian biplanes, as we said, uh, and they were now just like plane loads and plane loads with troops which is pouring in. So according to historian Odvard Hodal, that we're using for many of these details on this special day, Quisling had decided... Uh, that he was in fact going to take over power sometime after lunch. Apparently, uh, you know, fi- finding confidence and belief in seeing the very superior German military might and the fact that the Prime Minister Negoshvall and his government had fled the city. So he, together with Scheidt, goes to the Ministry of Defence, a place he was very familiar with having both first worked there and then actually being the Minister of Defence some years earlier, basically telling the confused people there that he was now in power, giving uh, the German, sh- uh, you know, also he had the German side sh- by his side, so he must have seen like a quite big deal also, as German troops were flooding everything everywhere at the same time, so... Uh, People might have also overestimated Scheidt's uh, importance. Brower, the guy that was officially in charge of the invasion, he was completely sidestepped by especially Scheidt that, you know, went behind his back with using Quisling as new head of state. And uh, Brower actually had turned down a request from Haglin earlier that very same day asking for Quisling to lead a new government. So he was basically saying no. Uh, Scheidt was pushing for Quisling to, to take power and a hesitant Quisling finally says, OK, I'll take power. In the evening of April 9th, Quisling and Scheidt, they went to the NRK. That is the Norwegian equivalent of BBC in Britain. It's the national broadcaster. And by hook or crook, they managed to get Quisling on the air, uh, broadcasting to the entire country that he was now the new head of state and that the Nygosfold government had fled instead of receiving the well-meant help from the Germans against the vile British that had already breached Norwegian neutrality. The speech is not that long, 
After all, they did not have much time to write it, and I will quote it here for you through my own translation. Quote, Norwegian men and women, a proclamation to the Norwegian people. After England having breached Norwegian neutrality by putting out sea mines in Norwegian territorial waters without facing any other resistance other than the usual empty protests from the Nygårdsvold government, the German government offered the Norwegian government their peaceful help accompanied by a solemn assurance to respect a national independence and Norwegian life and property. As an answer to this offer of a solution for our country in an utterly intolerable situation, the Nygårdsvold government has started a general mobilization and given that pointless order to the Norwegian armed forces to resist the German aid with armed force. The government have themselves fled after so easily putting its country and its inhabitants in jeopardy. Under these circumstances, it is the national gathering's duty and right to take over power to protect the Norwegian people's interests and Norway's security and independence. We are the only ones in light of the conditions and our movement's vision that can do this and hereby save the country out of the desperate situation that partisan politics has led our people into. The Nygårdsvold government has stepped down. The new national government has taken over power with Vidkin Quisling as head of state and foreign minister and with the other following members. And then Quisling goes on to read eight names and their new titles before he continues. All Norwegians are encouraged to show calmness in this for our country so difficult situation. By our shared efforts and everyone's goodwill, we shall keep Norway safe and sound through this major crisis. I will add that such as the situation has developed, any further resistance is not only futile, but will also be directly seen as criminal destruction of lives and property. Any official in any government function, and particularly our officers in the army, the navy, the coastal batteries and our air force, are obligated to obey orders solely from the new national government. Any exceptions from this will lead to the most grievous personal responsibility for any individual. Other than this, there will be just and considerate proceedings towards all countrymen. End quote. Now, this is quite sinister stuff, right? And it's uh, it was written down so hastily that many of the people in this new so-called government, they did not even know they were in it. And some were not, you know, really that keen. This event is seen by, by many to be the first coup d'etat in, in history, actually, done by mass media. So, uh, and this clip is also easily available out there for most of you. And even though if you don't speak Norwegian, I'll play a few seconds from the last bit. Uh, so you can just hear the tone of, of voice uh, that Quisling uses here. So here goes. In hver embedsmann og andre stats- og kommunale tjenestemenn, og i særdeleshet alle vårt lands offiserer, i her, marine, kystartilleri og luftvåben, er forpliktet til å lyde ordre utelukkende fra den nye nasjonale regjering. So yeah, I apologize to all you non-Norwegian speakers out there, but uh, you just get a sense of, of, of how he sounds like. And he held his speech twice actually during that evening, more or less with the same words. So uh, 
that is more or less the history of 9th of April. But you might also wonder, so what did Hitler think of all this? Because, you know, Quisling actually taking over power was not plan A. It was, you know, best case it was plan B, but really there was no plan B. So they had hacked it uh, so that Quisling could give his speech on radio. Uh, the official man in charge, Brower, he was just flabbergasted. He did not know anything about this. And, and also he didn't like Quisling all that much. And according to historian Hans Frederik Dahl, Hitler's response had been, wait for it, laughter. And he said something that, yes, now Quisling would in fact be able to create his government. Ha ha. <laughs> Such a weird reaction, I think. And Goebbels also write in his diary something along the lines that our helper Quisling has taken charge. So uh, basically, Hitler uh, clearly likes Quisling and the military operation has, you know, uh, bar a couple of, uh, uh, you know, losses of ships gone really well. Also, Denmark was, you know, taken straight away. So Hitler seems happy and that's end of story, right? Germany occupying Norway with Klissing as their puppet and will remain under Hitler's control until his suicide in 1945? Well, not quite. Uh, first of all, the complete chaos would continue the next few days. And as we briefly mentioned, some of the new people in Quisling's new quote-unquote government, they had no intentions of being part of that. Either they sent clear messages that they were not interested, or they simply just avoided to answer. Perhaps uh, tactically just waiting it out and seeing sort of what the reactions would be. And even his sort of previous wingman Pritz seemed to fail him. Also, the task of pretending to be a Norwegian prime minister while German troops were flooding into the country was not easy. And also, many of the Germans were very unsure what to think about Quisling. Some of the military side saw him as a simple traitor and really didn't want that much to do with him, whereas others saw him as a partner to collaborate with, and yet others really didn't quite know what to think of him. And according to Hans Frederik Dahl, his titles during these days, days range from Prime Minister, Head of State, Major, and only Herr, meaning simply Mister. So at the same time, large part of the Norwegian bureaucracy refused to cooperate. You know, the legitimate government was, and the king was still on the run, so Quisling quickly understood that he was pretty much alone despite Hitler taking his coup in good spirits. Also, there was little popular support for Quisling's branch of Nazism, as we have said. Nikoswald, the legitimate prime minister, he is, of course, from the Labour Party. That's on the quite, you know, other political uh, side of the political scale. And he's still pretty much a socialist with very, very, very limited fondness for marching soldiers and militaristic rule. So he has plenty of problems at this point, Quisling. And not only does he not have a great deal of support in the general population, even within his own party NS, people are pretty hesitant. And actually quite a few of the hardcore members outright ignored his orders to stop resisting the German occupants, and several of them actually actively fought against the Germans for many weeks. And even though the occupation of Denmark and Norway, all in all, was a great success for Hitler, you know, you know, except from Blücher, uh, the fighting would go on for about two months. And 
the cities were overrun straight away, but outside the rural areas, Norway has a rugged terrain, and the British that were, you know, ready to come into action, but were flabbergasted, they will eventually send troops to assist the Norwegian army, and actually recording Hitler's first loss in the war in the battle for the northern strategic important harbour city of Narvik, before eventually pulling all troops out later on as Germany are starting their invasion of France and they were needed elsewhere. So these NSUs are fighting against the Germans is a quite peculiar thing because nationalism was of course very important for them and they were concerned with Norwegian independence and national pride and even NS had always had a very open German-friendly politics. They clearly admired Hitler and his ideology. They were not prepared just to let another country's troops entering their country. So, a little bit conflicted, they fought alongside other patriots that were, in fact, fighting for democracy. And this here is something that has really been forgotten when we're talking about the history from all this time, also in Norway, because after the war, there was, of course, a lot of hatred towards anyone that had either been supporting NS or been collaborating actively with the Germans. But there are some strange dynamics in play here, and it's not black and white. I can't really stress that enough, and it's become so obvious for me reading a lot about this. It's so many shades of grey, and I personally think that we are uh, we are still so close to these events in time that it's still complicated for us emotionally to really dig into the nuances uh, so they're thinking about these people collaborating one way or another are as, you know we think of an sd for bad or something like that and i don't mean to justify uh, everything they did but there are some really fascinating aspects here that can teach us something that we might have overlooked a little bit and if we remember back to period the young man that would be quisling's assistant that we quoted at the very start of this episode he tells a story that his brother uh, would not speak to him when he found out that he had become a member of ns in early early 1940 some months before the occupation so this same brother that would not first speak to him because he didn't like NS, this same brother would join the people that fought uh, with uh, the Nazis uh, in more or less organized fashion. He was a soldier and fighter for his his country. So uh, he would fight on, first he would fight against the Nazis and then he would fight for the Nazis and he will be wearing a Wehrmacht uniform and he will end up uh, ending his state somewhere on the eastern front fighting against Soviets and according to Yar several of the Norwegians that fought against the Wehrmacht uh, initially uh, ended up you know fighting for Germany later on because they were young frustrated men who wanted to do something for their country they were not specifically politically oriented necessarily but they just seemed to have a really strong desire to do something. So when Quisling and others started recruiting troops a few years later on, uh, the, the context was that they wanted to defend Norway from communism. And many of these same people that resisted German occupation enlisted. They were told that they would go, uh, not go further than Finland uh, to def defend the Nordics, basically, against Bolshevism and what they called the Legion. And let's just hear again from what Yar said, because I think this is just so fascinating. Quote, 
One of the prerequisites for the Legion was that it would be a close unit under the command of Norwegian officers, also that it would be trained in Norway, wearing Norwegian uniforms and distinctions, and not least that it would fight in Finland and nowhere else. End quote. And he continues telling about negotiations about how this uh, Legion w- would, s- would look like. Quote, it was demanded that our volunteers would still have to pledge allegiance to Hitler, but only in the sense of being the supreme warlord, and only in the fight against Bolshevism. This was, after all, a big difference to pledging an oath to Adolf Hitler as the German nation's Führer and Reichskanzler. End quote. And of course... Nothing of this happened. They were sent to Germany to train. They were put in Wehrmacht uniforms. They were sent to the Soviet Union to fight. Many died among Germans and other peoples not speaking their own language. Some of them also became pretty hardcore Nazis. But that's a different story. But it goes to show that how things are not necessarily as black and white as it might look in retrospect. Um, And also some of the most famous Norwegian uh, partisans risking their lives fighting against the NS and the German occupation would, after the war, have a much more nuanced view of uh, of these people that ended up on the quote-unquote wrong side rather than the general population, population saying that they were necessarily not all that different. So this is a little bit of a sidestep, but I think that it's just, for me, it was so interesting to see that people actually could fight both against the German occupation of Norway and at the same time, a couple of years later, uh, fight, you know, for Germany under the sort of uh, explanation they were really fighting for Norway against Bolshevism. Okay. Um, We are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because we go back to the other chaos now after April 9, 1940, and it was not good news for Quisling. And to be honest, it was an utter disaster. Not only did big chunks of his new government that he had announced over the radio refuse to turn up, but in addition, a lot of other people's institutions ignored him. So he was not allowed to work from the government offices as they were now taken over by the Germans. And ironically enough, he ended up taking over the parliament building that had been abandoned, obviously. And so that... He that hated the representative democracy and, you know, partisan politics almost more than anything else ended up there. During the first days, Quisling, he did, however, have control over the NRK, the broadcasting company, and this was perhaps his most important tool. And he used that to spread propaganda, um, uh, and they also forcibly inserted the Free Folk newspaper into the other newspapers that were still coming out during these first days. So everybody will basically get the NS paper uh, attached to the normal newspaper. Uh, but he still was nowhere near in control. Now, and if all this wasn't enough, Brower, you know, the guy that were really supposed to be in charge of transitional power, he was approached by other Norwegians that wanted to challenge Quisling and his new government, something that Brower, of course, thought quite convenient, him having been more or less wrestled away from his mandate to secure the peaceful transition of power. So he all of a sudden starts backing this new guys, a new council that they will call themselves, consisting of a famous bishop and some other senior judges amongst others and uh, he is now pushing for Berlin to support this group rather than Quisling that truth be told had not done a great job convincing anybody in these first few days that he was capable of ruling Norway as a new German puppet. Uh, 
And at this point, it, it almost gets comical again because Quisling had desperately tried to get a hold of Hitler personally on the phone several times uh, to, you know, to get his Fuhrer friend to back him up a little bit more, but he was just completely unable to get through on the phone. So he, in desperation, he sent his new right-hand man, Haglin, down to Berlin in order to try to get him to speak with Hitler directly. And through the contact of Alfred Rosenberg, the ideologist that was the Quisling fan, Haglin actually managed to get to speak with Hitler on the 13th of April. And for me, this is one of the things that I can imagine the most vividly of all of this mess, because Haglin is down there sucking up to and lying to Hitler about how NS had 15% of the population behind them and at, at this point, and, you know, they had great connections to the private sector and so forth, whereas Hitler is becoming increasingly angry and annoyed before, according to historian Dahl, stating in a couple of times something like, I'm indifferent to who rules up there basically telling Haglin to shut up and stop complaining that he had more important business to attend to rather than fighting over what puppet he would have in Norway as long as he was pulling all the strings. However, he wasn't completely indifferent because he sent a new guy up to Norway to find out what the best solution was. And this new guy, he comes up to meet with Quisling and he is like Brower, not impressed at all. He feels that Quisling is wishy-washy with few concrete plans and the German army has, you know, also by this point not been happy with Quisling either. Uh, they could see that he was unpopular. They saw him as a usurper. Uh, and also what they didn't like is that they felt that the popular opinion was that they were protecting or acting on behalf of him that they did not feel that they were at all. Uh, and... You know, on top of everything also, they were still, you know, had a bit of grief towards Quisling for that, what he said about the coastal batteries that would not fire at them. Uh, so basically, Hitler's new representative in Norway, he quite quickly decides that uh, his clear recommendation will be to ditch Quisling and go for this so-called new council. As he thought, you know, one could also find some sort of legal mumbo-jumbo explanation to how this could seem semi-legit as members of the Supreme Court were in some cases allowed to take over control and with one Supreme Judge on their side, they could perhaps, you know, hack it in a way that they could try to justify uh, to the Norwegian people that this was all, you know, on the up and up and it was all great according to Norwegian law. And... Remember that they were not really calling it an occupation, right? They are, in their words, protecting Norway. It's funny that people never seem to call it an occupation when they occupy. And remember what we discussed in the last episode, how different the computer games really are when it comes to occupying an enemy city or a country compared to the real messiness of things. All the important details, all the bureaucracy and stuff that must be figured out. And it can be argued that Norway probably was messier than many other cases, and perhaps one can even argue that Quisling actually did the Allies a favour just by being this complicating factor in the middle of all this. Quisling is still, at this point, trying to desperately ring Hitler, and he's still not getting through on the phone. Uh, uh, so this guy that is not very flexible and not very comfortable when things are not going to plan, he is likely having pretty high stress levels at this time. So, coming up to this point, Quisling's first attempt is doomed. The pro-council uh, anti-Quisling Germans, they are gaining ground, 
and they are starting to convince Foreign Minister Ribbentrop and then Hitler that Quisling is not really the ideal solution, and he has in fact to that he has to step down so that this new council can do its business. However, Hitler still has a lot of love for Quisling, it seems, and he only reluctantly agrees to this if it can be done in a way where Quisling is not losing too much face and that it will be made clear that Germany appreciates Quisling and NS struggles and ideology and that Quisling will be put quote-unquote in the reserves or as a backup prime minister for later and that NS will continue to get full support from the German occupants and that they will be allowed to wear their own uniforms and so forth and then all in all it will be made very very clear that Quisling still has the support uh, from the Führer and from Germany. And let's just take a little moment to reflect on this because researching this, this thing here has been a little bit hard to make sense of because there is really no real need for Quisling, as we said. In retrospect, one can almost sort of argue that he was more of a burden than help. And even though Hagelin will have exaggerated a lot when it comes to NS position in Norway when talking to Hitler, it must have been quite clear to him that they were a very small party uh, and an almostly small Nazi cult more than a political force in, during this time of the occupation. So, to be honest, Hitler could probably easily have executed Quisling for his failed coup and reprimanded the Germans that helped him, but instead, Hitler is very concerned at Quisling you know, when he has to step aside or step down, will do so without losing face, and that will be his backup. And one possible explanation is, of course, that Hitler might believe that Quisling would become useful further down the road, but it does ever seem that this is really not the case. At this point in time, the king and government has fled, Germany are totally militarily dominant to a point where it's, you know, almost ridiculous, and they all of a sudden have this new council consisting of some really senior Norwegian officials working with them. So basically Hitler already has this his local collaborators in place. So Hitler really doesn't need Quisling from a practical standpoint. So why on earth continue to support him even after it has become quite clear that his first coup is not working? And the explanation might lie in ideology, because Hitler sees in Quisling another Aryan thinker like himself, one that has the same absolutism about him, that has the same ideas of race and the same urge to see the world through pseudoscience and pseudo-history. So more important than being a practical ally, Quisling and NS are ideological allies. And why this is important is really interesting, because looking back at different people's actions and what they have said, you see, this is my interpretation anyway, three different kind of Nazis at this point, or at least three different groups of Nazis with different worldviews within the Third Reich. You have your opportunists, of course, you know, those that sees National Socialism only as a career path, not necessarily buying into so much of the ideology. And then you seem to have the old Prussian legacy that seems to be present in some of the old generals. You know, they are really more concerned with duty, recovering the lost honour from the First World War. They are, uh, you know, fighting more for the fatherland than the new ideology as such. They feel pride of Germany's success, more or less regardless of political leadership. 
And then you have the quote-unquote real Nazis, the ones that actually do have an ideology and that this ideology matters a lot to. Himmler is a typical example of this. You know, he's the main character in the Holocaust and the man behind SS, a cult-like organization in Nazi Germany. We might have to dedicate our own episode to later. He is, like Hitler, one of these people that truly believe that not only are you know, they the superior race, they actually have a duty to secure that race that they, you know, saw under threat and they had an obligation towards that um, so-called purity and this race so-called future existence. And they believed almost religiously that their ethnicity, uh, ethnicity was bound to the land, blood and soil, was one of the main slogans, and they believed that it was some sort of God-given right that the Aryan or Germanic race would rule Central and Northern Europe. And I think this is important to really understand, that these people really, really, really believe in this. As Hitler said to Quisling the first time they met, they actually both called themselves Anglophiles and thought it pretty sad that they had to fight Britain. They, quote-unquote, only wanted to secure their Lebensraum, the Nazi concept meaning living space. They wanted to secure food production from the East, the greater Germanic Empire, among other rather dodgy arguments for why they needed to expand. Now, what Hitler really wanted or not wanted during the late 30s and 40s, it might have changed a lot. He's quite impulsive. Also, the invasion of Norway bears witness of this. He does not plan to have Quisling in, then he's happy to have Quisling there, and then he changes his mind, mind again in a few days. But regardless of this, I think it's, you know, understanding Nazi thinking is important to understand how this really works, no matter how you know despicable it is. Hitler, no, sorry, Himmler will actually be very interested in Norway after the invasion. He will travel there and spend a lot of resources trying to get Norwegian recruits as he sees southern Scandinavia as a potential birthplace of the entire Germanic race and that having this excellent race uh, prove itself in military combat, that will be a great idea that for him will provide fantastic results and that will, as he sees it, yet again prove the superiority of the Germanic people. Ironically, Norway is one of the occupied areas that have uh, the least recruits, despite the massive efforts, but it was not uh, for lack of trying. Uh, so, and these people, they have many sort of weird ideas. There are uh, some people that think that the Germanic race was inhabitants of Atlantis, the lost island, and, you know, many of these weird things, that they were sort of this high civilization that existed before all of this, and, and, and they're sort of Norwegian people, they were sort of part of, part of this picture somehow. But all in all, the Nazi occupation in Norway is, because of this, uh, less hard on the civilian population than Nazi occupation would be in other countries, even though it was, you know, more than rough enough. So, Quisling is, in many ways, a brother in arms to Hitler. Unlike other national socialists or fascists in other countries, you have, for example, one in Britain called Oswald Mosley. Uh, it seems that Hitler did not have very high thoughts about him, but it seems uh, that he views uh, Quisling uh, differently. It also comes to show that Quisling will uh, be invited to visit Quis uh, Hitler many, many times later on. However, at this time in our story, in the first days after the occupation on April 9th, 1940, Quisling has no other choice than to call it quits. 
Without German backing, he basically has nothing left, so they make a plan signalling how Quisling will step down and hand power over to this new council that was at this point supported by the Supreme Court, and they end up doing it uh, again on the radio, and the date is April 15th, only a few days after Quisling first went on the air saying that he had formed a government. Um, and in this speech, the leader of the council will thank Quisling, seemingly wholeheartedly, for taking responsibility, which, you know, of course, is just a lot of nonsense. For Quisling's part, though, he's in just a rotten position, as he has now already become a traitor and become known as such basically without getting much in return other than a promise from Hitler to be kept in reserve for later, but no one else knows this at this point. And he has also completely misjudged how his actions will be perceived by his surroundings, which is, you know, very typical of Quisling not being very great at interpreting signals. Historian Hans Friedrich Dahl puts it really nicely in his book Quisling and a Norwegian Tragedy. Quote, Because this was the fact that he had, he had misjudged fatally, the enraging, shameless distastefulness in that a politician and officer could stab his king and his government in the back in a time of need when a foreign power strikes in the cover of night. He misunderstood the depth of this enragement from his wrongful view that his real number of supporters were supposed to be larger than it really was. But first and foremost, he misunderstood the moral depth of all this. Soon he would be condemned by a whole world. The name Quisling was already on April 9th on the news wires and would soon overshadow the Kusinen name as a term for treacherous collaboration with the enemy. End quote. Kusinen that he is referring to here is, uh, is a guy named Otto Wilhelm Kusinen that was a Finnish head of communist puppet, puppet government under Stalin for a short time and he has also later been known as Finland's uh, Quisling. So you might think that this is the end for Wittgen Quisling, but a spoiler alert, uh, it's not, not by a long shot. Quisling's story lasts all the way until the end of the war and will take some more dramatic turns, but his quite hopeless fight to save his name will perhaps, you know, start even at this early point when it becomes obvious to him and his closest supporters that the events between April 9th and April 15th has not exactly been a great PR campaign. We have not mentioned his wife Maria Quisling since the first episode, but she is still his wife at this point. And if you remember, she was a Russian young lady he met while doing, doing humanitarian work. And she has been living with him in Norway for quite a few years now. And uh, another spoiler alert, she will survive the war and live into a ripe old age. And she was her entire life clinging to a notion that Quisling was doing the right thing. In 1980, a lot of her notes, diary entries and her attempts to write a book was published and where the desire to clear the Quisling name is very much apparent. In her book manuscript, she tries to spin the events on April 9th in a positive light for her husband and I'll quote a little from this text. Uh, she has written it almost like a novel where there, you know, she and her husband have frequent dialogues. And she starts with the events on April 8th where the Britain had breached Norwegian neutrality by placing sea mines in Norwegian territorial waters. Quote, My husband viewed the situation to be very grim. 
He viewed the mines not only as a serious breach of neutrality, but as a provocation so challenging that he meant the Germans could not avoid reacting to it. And she then quotes him. It looks like the rumours I heard in Denmark were true, he said deep in thoughts. This can only mean that the Allies now have decided to act. In a hope to learn more, he sat himself by the radio without results. End quote. So just as you understand, she's here both writing her own thoughts and then quoting her husband, and she's painting this image that people they meet in the streets and people that they know are flabbergasted by the Norwegian armies and government's unwillingness to do anything. And she's like painting this picture saying that all these people are contacting Quisling to get him, you know, the former defence minister, to do something, to wake them up. Uh, she continues her text like this, quote, Quisling sat down and closed his eyes. I could see that he was torn. What are you thinking about, Vidkin? I asked. I was also suffering from seeing him like this. On the entire situation, it is so desperate, or to be honest, hopeless, and this that no one can or wants to see the danger in the eyes, this threat of death that is hovering right over our heads. For example, what do you think that I saw on my way home? No, what did you see? Officers, tall and short, on their way down to the military academy to eat supper and listen to a lecture about ancient Rome. The king will be there too. This afternoon, when every nerve in the body should be longing after starting an immediate mobilization. So she is clearly, in a quite melodramatic way, trying to explain what it was, you know, that we, this was a case that her husband had no other choice than to take responsibility, so to speak, because the government was so weak and so unwilling to act. And I'm not really quoting this because it is historically accurate, because it's not, because it's, I, I'm quoting it because it's interesting, because she herself is writing this, and it's an excellent sort of way to understand how Quisling and his supporters would try to frame his treason uh, all the way to towards the end of the war and after. Uh, and, you know, as I said, in the case of Maria Quisling, her entire life, and she goes on, quote, he walked with heavy steps up and down the floor, up and down. What will this come to, you think? Is Norway going to be in war? I asked. I cannot understand how it can be avoided. I fear that God's judgment is upon us, my husband replied downbeat. It is like I have said for years now that uh, this that I have warned against, now this situation is here. Now they will make another Poland out of us. I snuggled up to him and started crying. It was all so horrible. He caressed me and kissed me and said, Now you must be brave. We will face heavy times ahead and might need all our strength and all our courage. End quote. And then finally, she talks about the time when Quisling all of a sudden turns up on the radio on April 9th. At least, this is how she describes it, and she refers his entire speech before she continues. Quote, I was almost in shock. Under the entire speech, I sat there as paralysed. When he was finished, I broke out in tears. My friends tried to comfort me. But this is great. You should be happy. It is the only thing your husband can do in this situation. No, I don't agree, I said. His enemies might want to take advantage of this to destroy him. Don't you understand that I fear for him? Remember, that is my husband and that I love him. End quote. 
actually filled with very much of her own emotions and pathos and a lot of things that are probably not true. But this is still so fascinating to see how the human brain could put a spin on things and justify things for itself. And Maria Quisling would not at any point admit uh, that her husband had committed treason and her very emotional attempt at describing events from her point of view gives us a great window into her mind. But back to 1940, Quisling has now stepped down, this council is being put in charge, but it is of course clear that Norway would of course have no real power over its own politics anymore. And at this point, uh, it is time to introduce a new main character in our little narrative. A man I teased you would get to know by the end of the last episode as one of the cruelest Nazis you probably never, uh, or never have heard about. And here he is, entering to the frame the man called Joseph Tabofen. Tabofen, he is quite young at this time. He's 41 years old, but still an old friend of Hitler. Hitler actually was his best man at his wedding in 1934. And as a curiosity fact, this was right before the Night of the Long Knives. And for Hitler, this was a you know a special point in attending Tabofen's wedding, just to make everything seem like normal, while he was actually planning to kill off all of his opponents within the Nazi party. And as another sort of curiosity or fun fact, Tabofen's wife was a former secretary and mistress of Josef Goebbels, the notorious Nazi propaganda minister. So there you go. Tabofen had been a member of the Nazi party for a very long time and was proud to be one of the old boys. He played a role in the failed Beer Hall Putsch all the way back in 1923 and he at one point in his youth opened up a Nazi bookshop. In the Nazi hierarchy, Goebbels and Goering seems to have been his closest allies in addition to Hitler. But we strangely know very little about Tabofen outside of his CV and his actions. For example, we don't even know for sure who his father was. But when it comes to categorising him within the Nazi party, he still seems a little bit more like an opportunist rather than a dedicated believing National Socialist falling in love with the old notions of the old Germanic heritage and so forth. He is very much a practical person that wants to climb the career ladder. The personality traits that first and foremost describes him is ambitious and cynical. He has absolutely no qualms when it comes to executing people without a sentence or dishing out capital punishment in other ways and does not, for example, like Himmler, seem to be very impressed with the Nordic race's so-called special qualities. Terboven, he arrives in Norway on April 24th and orders from Hitler. In yet another change of heart, Hitler had decided that the new National Council could not rule Norway alone and Tabofen get to lead the Reichskommissariat in Norway and will report directly to Hitler. Even though Quisling has stepped down at this time, he's still important to Hitler. So Tabofen sits down to speak with Quisling shortly after arriving in Norway and it very, very quickly becomes clear that these are two very different men that have very little sympathy for one another. Tabofen asks Quisling very concrete questions, you know, the number of NS members and so forth, uh, all these practical things, whereas Quisling is a fluffy and, you know, t- uh, you know, philosophical character, would rather talk about the grander ideological scheme of things, ending up with Tabofen afterwards describing Quisling as more or less a complete moron. 
Tabovan is not really a military man. He came from the position of a top civilian leader in the important Essen area, where he also was from. And he is all about efficiency and results, with very little time for nonsense. And his troubled relationship with Quistling is extremely well documented. They would both clearly prefer that the other person was not there. Tabovan tries to work with this new council, but it proves difficult, and he ends up in September 1940 appointing his own little government, where most of the ministers were actually NS guys. But still, there is no place for Quisling in his government. These ministers had, however, sworn loyalty towards Quisling, so uh, he has some indirect power from this point on. Quisling had in the meantime finally been able to meet with Hitler again in the middle of August. In, the mid, in, the, in that meeting was seen as very uh, successful for Quisling because Hitler again promised him that Quisling would be the Norwegian head of state at some point. So Hitler still seems uh, quite erratic and inconsistent in his orders because at the same time he wanted that the Reichskommissariat with Terboven also would have the strongest possible position. So basically he's telling both men that they will rule in Norway somehow. However, Terboven's temporary government would only be in place until Quisling could strengthen NS and rebuild his organization in numbers. And this was directly on Hitler's request. So if Hitler was a CEO of a company, you would perhaps be able to accuse him for not being super clear in his orders because he's basically installed both these sort of men to, to rule. And this sort of first period of the occupation is just really uh, chaotic, just like the occupation itself, to be honest. Uh, Tabovan has a lot of negotiations with Norwegian top officials. He ended up deciding to have a temporary ruling system himself. He was really not that interested in sharing power, but, you know, he had to prepare his people. That Quisling would at some point take up some sort of position as head of state. Uh, and he um, he was for the first time aware that Quisling had in fact met the fear in Berlin already in 1939. And uh, he didn't know this before. And he proclaimed the following to his people in September 1940, quote, in December 1939, Quisling visited their Führer. His message was so clear that their Führer was convinced about England's vile intentions. From this moment on, their Führer started preparing actions in Norway. Quisling's great achievement therefore deserves any help and support from the greater German Reich. End quote. So, we will not go too uh, deep into the German occupation of Norway just in this time period, just as we did not go into a great deal of detail in the military invasion operation Versorübung. But there are, of course, some points that are very important when it comes to this to understand Quisling's actions during the war. Tabovan had from September 25th banned all other political parties than NS in Norway. And as you can imagine, censorship was implemented uh, pretty quickly when it came to the arts, the press and so forth. So from now on, it was only pure Aryan, pro-Nazi and pro-German things that would be allowed. So even though not having a formal role, Quisling was you know, very much being part of the political scene as a leader of NS, the only now legal party. And people uh, like his new right-hand man, Hagelin, now had acquired important positions in the new sort of tab of uh, temporary government. 
NS also now had access to a lot of the political apparatus that had previously been known by the other parties, uh, like newspaper presses and other things. And NS managed to grow its membership, uh, actually reaching about 25,000 by the end of 1940. So there seemingly was not a lack of people that wanted to join now that Norway was under German occupation. And Quisling and NS clearly still had, you know, uh, the blessings of Hitler. At the same time, uh, the war is, of course, going really well for Germany at this point. The overwhelming victory and occupation of France during the summer of 1940 sent shockwaves throughout the world as France was really viewed as one of the big guns. If you remember in World War I, France was, you know, one of the really big players. Uh, but they were completely sidelined by Germany's swift military tactics and modernised war machine. And it was also at this point before the United States entered the war. So at this point, Hitler seemed like a pretty good bet, at least if you could live with the abhorrent racism and totalitarianism and censorship. There is no signs at this point that Germany will in fact lose the war. Quite the contrary. During the late 1940, a lot of political intrigue in the various NS people and Tabovin's men, and they are both trying to manipulate the circle around Hitler to gain ground. In fact, this will be a dynamic that is present more or less throughout the war. They're sort of playing up and sucking up to the big man. What is perhaps the most interesting is the quizzing in NS people are overly concerned with some sort of German-Norwegian peace treaty, that they actually believe... Uh, that they, while the war is raging on, will actually be a truly independent as an ally and not a vassal of Nazi Germany, which is I- interesting. And especially Hagelin, the new wingman of Quisling, he is writing all these letters to Berlin and uh, complaining that the German presence is very much in the way. Like It's almost like he doesn't understand that they are, in fact, under German rule. Uh, and that's, you know... <laughs> This annoying presence is not going to go away anytime soon. And Quisling has, you know, some of the same tendencies. For example, he will be very unhappy that Terboffen, after the occupation, raised the swastika flag on the roof of the parliament building. Quisling still wanted to be a, you know, and have Norwegian flags and so forth there. And there will be, you know, a lot of these small things that. NS will complain about that seems just like so naive in retrospect. So in one way they need the German military control as they are still far away from having any kind of political majority in the population but on the other hand they want independence in a way. So at the same time they are more than happy to use the German might as a sledgehammer to push their decisions through but they don't want to be bossed around. So this rivalry between the Germans and the, and the Norwegian Nazis was also strong during the spring of 1941. Quisling, he was very eager to start his mission as a new head of state, but there were always postponements. And of course, Tabofen, you know, he was more or less sabotaging this. He, he had no sort of desire for this to happen overnight, really. And it's, it was still a sort of complicating factor that the Norwegian king and Nygosfall and his government managed to escape to England and they uh, kept fighting uh, Germany in the limited capacity they could. But they, they were about to become a very important symbol for Norwegian resistance. They would prove a fears and a massive problem both for Turboff and Quisling. 
The latter had avoided criticising the king up until 1941, but then he'd had enough. The verbal gloves were off, so to speak, and he started lashing out against the English and King Haakon VII that was uh, in exile in London. Um, And he was really of Danish descent, as we have uh, uh, touched upon earlier. So Quisling was starting to, to claim that the king was nothing less than a British vassal king and that ever since Harold Hardrada's invasion and attempt of Nordic colonization in England in 1066, they had been resisted by the English that had refused this Norwegian or Nordic influence, and the, the British, that was they were no longer our brethren in our blood, you know. He was very sort of uh, harsh, basically, to everybody that he felt had rejected him. Uh, and he said that the British rather had become our enemies and that had fallen under William the Conqueror that brought the Roman and then the Jewish heritage of the British Isles. So, yeah, that is exactly uh, how crazy it was. And this also sort of shows Quisling. Uh, Quisling sort of love for history so that basically what he's saying is that since William the Conqueror conquered England instead of Harold Hardrada 1066 that is sort of sort of the proof that the English are no longer Nordic and he all of a sudden just figured that out it seems and the fact that William was himself a descendant of the legendary Norse Viking Rollo was not men- mentioned at all but you know details schmitels and if you thought that Quisling at any point had relaxed his extreme racism, you would be mistaken. He went to Germany to speak at a Nazi conference about the problems with the Jews, and he was not holding back one inch, not really going in for the complete annihilation of Jews, but ins- insist uh, that all Jews had to be deported far, far away. Madagascar, Cyprus, some sort of island was his sort of... Uh, preference. And according to Quisling's personal assistant during the war, Pierre Yard, that we quoted at the start of this episode, he maintained that Quisling had respect for Jewish individuals, but that the Jews as a whole was the problem. According to Yard, Quisling's hostile rhetoric towards Jews led to members of NS attacking Jews across Norway, even though he claims that Quisling did not approve. It might sound a little surprising if you're not deep into World War II history, but the most horrible chapter of the Holocaust with the so-called final solution does not really start until the Wannsee Conference in January 1942, relatively late in the life of Nazi Germany, even though both systematic and random harassment had been ongoing for a very long time. It is quite interesting to see how the occupation of Norway goes from being this sort of attempted charm offensive uh, from the German point of view to being a pure totalitarian and oppressive regime. During the summer and fall of 1941, all radios in all Norwegian homes were confiscated because the Norwegian exile government with the king through the BBC were broadcasting news and, you know, the Nazis obviously saw this as propaganda and from that point on, Owning a radio was a dangerous thing, but many would still have their own radio receivers and and listen secretly throughout the war, hidden around in barns and so forth. Tabovan, he had tried to get on the good side of the important union since the winter of 1941, uh, and without succeeding, 
Quisling would inform him that he had really no chance as the leaders of the union were ex-communists. So this conflict uh, Tannebofen had with the workers, it resulted in a strike in September 1941. We've jumped a little bit ahead in time here. We're in 1941 now. Whereupon Tannebofen declared martial law and arrested two prominent union leaders that he quickly executed. So this event was yet another shock to large parts of the Norwegian public, so that if they weren't already aware now, it became extremely clear that they were occupied by a Nazi regime that was not at all concerned with human life or justice. Norway had its last death penalty in 1876, so for these two men to be executed more or less right after being arrested sent a really strong signal. Quisling, however, he was not really too concerned with this, and he agreed that some hardship was necessary. And here we are really moving into an area of what will be a real rise of the underground Norwegian resistance in in uh, against the Nazis. The sides have now really materialised and sort of been cemented on, on each side, and people are for real starting to understand what Nazism, NS, and Nazi Germany is all about. There can be no doubts anymore, even though being peppered by Nazi propaganda through newspapers in any form, uh, in any form where possible, really. So this might be the reason why Turboffen, after this, he tried for a little while at least, to show a bit of a softer side, talking about Norwegian independence all of a sudden, and that being a possibility in the context of the Greater German Reich, as long as people just support the politics that was promoted by NS. So Tepoff and also, he actually saw some use of Quisling and NS in this, trying to use them as some sort of political alibi. Behind the scenes, the power struggle between Turboven and Quisling continued, though, and Quisling tried to use this strike where Turboven executed Union leaders to his advantage, sending these messages to Hitler that this strike was a result of orders coming from Germans uh, and that the national feelings would become much more appeased if the orders had come from him, a fellow Norwegian, instead. According to historian Dahl, Hitler was at this point not really that concerned with this as he had been. He had other much more pressing issues to take care of um, in the various war theatres, and even though NS had gained a, a fair few members at this time, they were still completely dependent on German military force. However, there seems to be a shift in Turboven's view at this point. That's in late 1941. And this is, of course, also a great shift in the entire Second World War, because Germany at this point has many divisions deep into Soviet territory. Japan and USA are entering the war, and it's becoming a real global conflict. And this might have had something to do with Tabov and of all people all of a sudden starting to support that NS and Quisling should have in fact greater influence in Norway and the sources do not really tell us a lot about why but as a personal reflection on this it might be the case that Turboff no longer really wanted to stay in Norway and wanted a more, you know, a larger, bigger part of the action. We know, for example, that he wanted to take over control of Belgium at a later point. 
So it might be the case that he thought installing Hitler's favourite Quisling would actually be good for him so that he could be used elsewhere and sort of continue climbing the, the Nazi career ladder. After all, <clears throat> Norway had become rather bothersome. It was no longer really significant. Uh, workers were striking, the king and government was making noise from England, and you start to see a more active resistance from the people. The attempts at charming people with goodwill and promises of independence did not seem to work. And then there was the entire NS business that was just being a real pain in the butt. So it's not entirely unlikely that he really wanted to give up Norway and that it was just not the career path he had hoped it would be. But we don't really know uh, why he changed his position, seemingly changed his position on this so so abruptly. But it's very clear that he did because he quite actively goes in for that uh, Quisling should get a clear position or s- some sort of head of state with his own uh, government. In fact, Turboven meets with Hitler in the middle of January and convinces him to give Quisling a head of uh, uh, state functionality and that um, the Reichskommissariat that he was leading did not necessarily need to handle every small business going on in Norway, only if it was important for the war effort, he said. And right after returning, Turboven calls Quisling into a meeting informing him about the, the new system and that it was approved by Hitler personally and that, um, uh, that it would start actually from only a couple of weeks later and that Quisling would be greeted by Hitler in Berlin later on in a grand ceremony to be congratulated. Now, this was of course excellent and unexpected news for Quisling, but he and NS had at the same time been very concerned that Norway and Germany should officially declare peace and that Norwegian independence should be secured under the rule of NS. So, would that also take place as part of this? Turboven, on his hand, said that, you know, he might reduce his staff a little, but that, you know, Reichskommissariat had to remain until further notice. And the message from Berlin was that Quisling could form his government, but that was all for now. A peace settlement between Norway and Germany was not out of the question, according to Terboven, but the ongoing war in Russia really needed to be brought to a success first. So Heitland and Quisling were quite understandably sceptical, but there was, of course, nothing they could do to turn uh, turn this down. And on February 1st, 1942, the official Quisling government is inserted with a huge ceremony in Oslo in what they in Norwegian call Staatsakt, and they translate to something like the Act of State or something in English. It's, it's hard to find a great translation. But they had transported in NS members from all of the country. There were a lot of swastika flags and Norwegian flags together. Girls in Norwegian traditional clothing were smiling and handing out flowers, German military marching bands were playing music and there were speeches by both Tabofen and Quisling and the Nazi propaganda apparatus was in full action. A lot of this is easily accessible uh, on YouTube and such. Um, They started making these Nazi newsreels in black and white that would be shown regularly in theatres. You can view it there if you like. While this would give NS more space to manoeuvre, it would in reality not change all that much. Other than, you know, it meant higher prestige for Quisling, that would move his office into the royal palace, and he and Maria Quisling had already moved into a really large and luxurious villa in Oslo, a huge building that is actually today the Norwegian Holocaust Museum. Even though NS was now more formally in charge of Norway, there was still a lot of disappointment among the top dogs in Enna's hierarchy. Quisling's assistant, P.R., puts it like this, quote, 
The mood was really tense, but on the outside everybody kept their masks on. The act of state was in the press and radio presented as a historic event for Norway and it was created an impression that our freedom and independence was now right around the corner, end quote. In hindsight, it seems just incredibly naive to believe that Hitler would really grant any form of independence to Norway, even under Enes and Quisling rule. Of course, no major decisions would be made that Germany did not approve of, even though Quisling will get some power, and he also has a huge part responsibility for the atrocities that will follow. Because from this point forward, the occupation is only getting more and more brutal and more and more violent, and the Norwegian party sense uh, will led from London will grow in strength and they will really, really start to give the Nazis trouble. And you might remember that I, at the end of the previous episode, promised that a Nobel Prize winning author would make an appearance in this episode. And the author in question is the American John Steinbeck, that many of you will have heard about. He's the man behind masterpieces like The Grapes of Wrath, East of Eden, Of Mice and Men, and so forth. And what does he have to do with all of this, you might wonder. And while it is quite obscure, there really is a, a connection here. As Steinbeck will, during the war, write a novel called The Moon is Down. It takes place in a country that very much seems like Norway, and there's being occupied by foreign forces. And while not being one of his greatest work, it is really describing how difficult it is to maintain control over a people that do not want to be put under control. This quite short novel actually plays a part in the Norwegian resistance movement as it is passed on from person to person secretly as a morale booster. The book was of course illegal and as a way to prove that resistance was meaningful so it's basically almost literally propaganda really. Steinbeck will after the war be rewarded by the Norwegian king for his work. I'll, I'll just quote a little bit from the novel uh, and a conversation between two of the characters in it so that you get a sense of how it goes. Uh, so this is a couple of pages from the book and I just love the typical Steinbeck tone of voice. So here you are, ladies and gentlemen, a little bit of John Steinbeck's The Moon is Down. Joseph moved a chair up to the table and he set it carefully at the right distance from the table and he adjusted it. They're going to hold a trial, he said. They're going to try Alexander Morden, Molly Morden's husband, Molly Morden's husband, from bashing that fellow with a pick. That's right, said Joseph. But he's a nice man, Annie said. They've got no right to try him. He gave Molly a big red dress for her birthday. What right have they got to try Alex? Well, Joseph explained, he killed this fellow. Suppose he did. The fellow ordered Alex around. I heard about it. Alex doesn't like to be ordered. Alex's been an older man all his life. His father too. And Molly Morden makes a nice cake, Annie said charitably. But her frosting gets too hard. What will they do with Alex? Shoot him, Joseph said gloomily. They can't do that. Bring up the cheers, Annie. Yes, they can. They'll just do it. Annie shook a very rigid finger in his face. You remember my words, she said angrily. People aren't going to like it if they hurt Alex. People like Alex. Did he ever hurt anyone before? Answer me that. No, said Joseph. Well, there you see. If they hurt Alex, people are going to be mad, and I'm going to be mad. I won't stand for it. What will you do? Joseph asked her. 
Why, I'll kill some of them myself, said Annie. And then they'll shoot you too, said Joseph. Let them, I tell you, Joseph, things can go too far. Tramping in and out all hours of the night, shooting people. Joseph adjusted a chair at the head of the table, and he became in somewhat curious way a conspirator. He said softly, Annie? She paused, and sensing his tone, walked nearer to him. He said, Can you keep a secret? She looked at him with a little admiration, for he had never heard a secret before. Yes, what is it? Well, William Deal and Walter Doggle got away last night. Got away where? They got away to England, in a boat. And he sighed with pleasure and anticipation. Does everybody know it? Well, not everybody, said Joseph. Everybody but, and he pointed a quick thumb towards the ceiling. When did they go? Why didn't I hear about it? You were busy. Joseph's voice and face were cold. You know that Corel? Yeah. Joseph came close to her. I don't think he's going to live long. What do you mean? Annie asked. Well, people are talking. Annie sighed with tension. Ah. Joseph at last had opinions. People are getting together, he said. They don't like to be conquered. Things are going to happen. You keep your eyes peeled, Annie. There are going to be things for you to do. So there you have it. It's no doubt that we are at a quite different uh, literary level here uh, compared to the case of Maria Quisling, uh, but uh, that is, of course, not surprising. So this novel from Steinberg, he's a, it's a clear call to action for the people to rise up against the Nazi oppressors. And at the point where we are now in our story, we're entering the final part of the war, the most brutal part, where Turboven, Quisling and Hitler will continue to play a huge part. We will see some of the most daunting sabotage missions in perhaps the whole war, so much that they actually made a Hollywood movie about one of them. Josef Tarboven will commit one of the most spectacular and morbid suicide of all of the top Nazis during the war, and Quisling will stand trial, trying to defend his actions, but all of this is something that we will delve into in the next and the last episode about the traitor Wittgen Quisling and the fall of Nazism in Europe. Thank you all so much again for listening. Um, I really appreciate getting feedback from you guys and seeing how many different places actually are tuning in to listen. It's really inspiring. Uh, there is a webpage up you can visit if you like. I have a Twitter account that I try to post some photos and stuff on related to, to the episodes. You can check that out. If you just uh, search for Game Changing History, you should find it. Um, and also, yeah, tell a friend if you if you like what you've heard. And see you next time for the last and fourth episode about Vitkin Quisling. Cheers. <laughs>